The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and ahead this hour, Mary Barra says she put a historic offer on the table. UAW workers not seeing it the same and instead have now begun a historic strike. There will be ripple effects throughout the economy, especially if it goes beyond a few weeks. We'll have the latest and look at just how wide those ripples could get. Plus, our market guest, he's standing right over there, and he says he still sees gains ahead, but they will be much harder to come by from here. He's here to explain how to find them and the names he's buying right now. And on the heels of Arms Big Trading debut, we have a special three buys and a bail 2023 IPO edition. Oh, yes. Gina Sanchez joins us with those trades, and she has a bonus bail from a prior crop, actually but a cautionary tale for what can happen after the initial IPO hype. Before all that, let's start with a look at these markets where we seem to be breaking uh, the green streak. Those gains are harder to come by even just today. True. Is, is what it comes down to. So big rally yesterday, Kelly. Not so much today. As you can see here, we're just about a maybe one half a percent lower on the Dow Industrials. 34,721 off 185 points. For the broader-based S&P 500 large cap index, we sit at 4468, down 36 points or about three quarters of one percent. Uh, it's been a down day all day. Even at the highs of the session, we were down about eight points. At the lows of the session, down roughly 45, so tilting towards the lower end of that trading range so far today. The Nasdaq Composite really leading the advance or lagging the most, if you want to look at it that way. The Composite Index down 163 points, over 1% decline there, 13,762 the last trade there. One place that we've seen an extraordinary amount of volatility intraday has been in oil prices. We got U.S. benchmark WTI crude now currently back above the $90 mark. One half of 1% gain there, $90.61 per barrel. At one point today, we were up, highest level since going all the way back to November 8th of last year. And then at one point, we were much lower. The catalyst, though, to the upside, generally speaking today, was better than expected economic data on the retail sales front, industrial production out in China, leading to some issues about whether demand is stoking up in the world's second biggest economy. Also, some refinery utilization numbers suggesting some more demand out there for WTI crude. So we're watching oil prices going higher on that. And then we'll finish off with the ARM IPO. Kelly referenced it right off the top of the show here. We're up another 1.5% today, $64.62, a blockbuster day yesterday, 25 26% gains after the IPO price. So we're continuing that move higher. It's helping to propel sentiment, Kelly. A little bit more positively, which is why we're expecting Instacart's IPO possibly next week sometime. So Arm Holdings, Instacart, it feels like the IPO gates are starting to open just a little wider. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. We begin this hour with the thousands of UAW members striking at three key auto plants after failing to reach a deal on a new labor contract. Stellantis, owner of Chrysler, seeing nearly 6,000 workers on strike. GM and Ford have less than 4,000 each on the picket line. Interestingly, shares of the big three automakers are generally moving higher right now. Here's what GM CEO Mary Barra told our Phil LeBeau this morning about the economic ripple effects of the strike and the urgency of getting a deal done. 
We need to get there fast because uh, this is not good for our employees. It's not good for the communities, their families. And for every GM job, there's six other jobs in the economy that depend on, uh, depend on us running. So we got to get back to work. And Phil joins us now alongside Diane Swank. She is chief economist at KPMG, and we'll talk about the uh, ripple effects of this, Diane, in just a moment. But, Phil, first, what's the latest this hour? Not much change, Kelly. That is the latest. And if you were expecting today to be a day where you might hear news from the UAW regarding negotiations or from one of the automakers, that's not going to happen. Bargaining in terms of you know, the big group getting together and sitting down and hashing out details, that's not happening today. The UAW says bargaining will begin again tomorrow. And we may see some developments over the weekend. Today, what we're seeing at the three plants that are on strike, picketing. Out in front, 12,700 workers approximately are on strike at these three plants, one here in Michigan, one in Ohio, one in Missouri. The UAW is shutting down essentially 15% of the big three's U.S. production by shutting down these three plants with these three plants going on strike. In terms of the, the bottom line here, it's the wages and, and the all-in wages, and you can see that you've got General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, about 63 to $65 all in per hour, well ahead of the foreign automakers who are selling vehicles, manufacturing here in the U.S., and then even further ahead of where Tesla is in terms of costs. They are offering a 175 to 20% pay raise. Now, that's not all of what goes into that $65 an hour, but it is a healthy increase in pay potentially. Here's Mary Barra talking with us this morning about her frustration over the negotiations. I'm extremely frustrated and disappointed. We don't need to be on strike right now. You know, we put a historic offer on the table that not only has very significant uh, gross wage increases, you know, total through the contract, over 20 percent that compounded is 21 percent. But we also have uh, job security. We maintain world class health care. There's so many aspects of this uh, of the offer we have on the table that I think uh, really is going to resonate with our employees. So we didn't need to be here. As you take a look at shares of General Motors, we should point out that here in downtown Detroit, there will be a rally by the UAW later this afternoon. But again, Kelly, no direct talks in terms of the big stuff going on today that's expected to resume tomorrow. A great piece on CNBC.com, filled by our colleague John Rosevere. And I'm curious what you make of his uh, sort of analysis here that we could see the Ford piece of this resolved first, maybe GM second, and Chrysler or Stellantis could take some more time because of all the plant closures in the U.S. they've already been talking about. Well, yeah, everybody has known for some time that Stellantis is, is perhaps in the trickiest position. They have already idled the plant in Belvedere, Illinois, just outside of Rockford. And the UAW wants that reopened. They want production there. And the question becomes, if you are Stellantis, okay, do you reopen that? Because that is a huge cost that you would be committing to. That's another final assembly plant. Or do you repurpose it in some fashion, maybe with electric vehicles? That's all part of the negotiation here. And also keep in mind, Stellantis has far more inventory than GM and Ford. So to a certain extent, it can wait this out a bit. 
doesn't mean that they like a strike, but they've got more inventory, far more inventory than GM and Ford. That's a great point. I just saw the numbers about twice as much as uh, GM does and Ford somewhere in the middle. Phil, we'll let you go. We really appreciate you joining us with that report today. You bet. Our Phil LeBeau. Let's turn to Diane Swank now. And Diane, I should mention to our viewers as well, not just what their fallout might be, as you've warned from these continued strikes to the U.S. economy, but we also could now be facing the biggest health care strike we've seen uh, authorized against Kaiser Permanente out on the West Coast. We are seeing a lot of strikes right now, and it really is. We already were at the highest level of strikes in the August employment data that we'd seen since 2003. We could easily go back to 1998 very quickly in the month of September and October. The real effects of these strikes really don't start to really bite in the employment data until we get into October. The survey week is the second week of October. This, The people that are paid this week will show up on payroll, so that's very important. What we did see, though, was already some idled plants, 3,000 workers, an increase of 3,000 people on unemployment insurance claims due to an idled production plant in the auto sector. And that will show up as a manufacturing loss in the September data. But what's important is how quickly these tend to snowball. Once you shut down a full assembly plant, you start to affect suppliers very rapidly. The people who are furloughed and not on strike in the suppliers are eligible for unemployment employment insurance, but it also, they will be counted as unemployed workers, where strikers, when they walk out of a plant, are not counted as unemployed. Hmm. And this will become extremely important when we're trying to suss out the direction of the economy. One moment, I want to bring everybody some news. Former President Donald Trump sat down with incoming Meet the Press moderator Kristen Welker, and uh, here's what he just had to say about the strike. Let's talk about the economy. And I want to start by talking about this big standoff between the auto workers and the big three auto manufacturers. My question for you, Mr. President, whose side are you on in this? Uh, I'm on the side of uh, making our country great. Uh, The auto workers uh, are not going to have any jobs when you come right down to it, because if you take a look at what they're doing with electric cars, electric cars are going to be made in China. The auto workers are not going to have any, I'll tell you what, the auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership, and their leadership should endorse Trump. The reason is, you got to have choice. Like in school, I want school choice. I also want choice for cars. If somebody wants gasoline, if somebody wants all electric, they can do whatever they want. But they're destroying the consumer, and they're destroying the auto workers. The auto workers will not have any jobs, Kristen, because the, all of these cars are going to be made in China. The electric cars automatically are going to be made in China. So let's talk about UAW's leadership. The president, Sean Fain, has withheld his endorsement of President Biden. But this is what he had to say about you. Quote, another Donald Trump presidency would be a disaster. How would you win that endorsement? Well, if that's the case, I probably won't win his. I don't know the gentleman, but I know his name very well. And I think he's not doing a good job in representing his union because he's not going to have a union in three years from now. Those jobs are all going to be gone because all of those electric cars are going to be made in China. You can see more of Kristen's exclusive interview with former President Trump as she debuts as moderator of Meet the Press this Sunday. We should note the same invitation to sit down with Kristen has been extended to President Biden, who so far has not accepted. Diane, I I hadn't heard that answer before. I literally just wrote the newsletter completely about this issue this morning. And I want to unpack a couple of things here because this is so on point. China right now is about to become the world's biggest exporter of cars 
globally. Three years ago, they weren't even in the top 15. And only because of Trump's tariffs on Chinese-made batteries and that kind of thing, they haven't made inroads into the U.S. yet. But they're probably going to, whether in partnership with Toyota, with BYD, or one of the others, already top-selling cars in Sweden and so forth. Um, this is a ma- you know, we've been talking to you about the impact of the strikes on the economy. How about the impact from the UAW and even Tesla being backfooted? If all of a sudden the consumer can buy a $40,000 Chinese made EV and that's going to dramatically transform uh, the fortunes of the auto industry in this country as we know it. Well, we've seen this before. We've seen it with the Japanese producers in the 1980s, which I'm really familiar with. Right. And We've also seen those mover, those those producers also move to the United States, which is really striking. I think what's important to see is what we've seen in terms of response to all the trade wars that we've had and the tensions that we've had with China. We have seen a major reallocation of supply chains around the world. And Mexico's been the largest winners, largely because of the USMCA. Now, that's really important to understand because that means a lot of production is shifting not only by other producers around the world and U.S. producers into Mexico as well, but also Chinese producers are shifting around the world to deal with some of the issues and the tensions within trade. And I think that's important to understand because we're going to see that be a big Mexico is now our largest trading partner ahead of Canada in China in 2023. That's a new move for Mexico. And it's in a direct response to what were initially the tariffs on China, which have been extended under two administrations. Right. And that's why I want to broaden this out, because we can talk in the very near term about what's going to listen. As Dan Ives and others have said, if the strike goes beyond four weeks, you start to see the economic impact really pushed uh, out into 2024 for the car makers and also broadened out economically here. So, you know, there's there's kind of the near term tussle on labor and inflation and all of the issues we know about. But looming in the background is this larger question of this existential threat to the automakers survival. I mean, (laughs) if we take a billion or two out of their profits next year, okay, GM made 10 billion, Ford lost 2 billion last year. You know, there's there's not a ton of fat there. I think the real issue is, you know, what are we going to see going forward? Where is the electric vehicle plants going to be? Right now, there has been a huge bias to build up electric vehicle capacity um, and try to catch up. In regard to that, in both the United States and most notably Mexico being the biggest winner in that move that we're seeing going on out there. In fact, in some industrial parks within Mexico, they now have zero vacancy rates and they're going to other Latin American countries to try to recruit workers because they have labor shortages there. And their wages are cheaper, actually, than those in China. So I think that's important to remember as well. At the end of the day, though, all of what we're seeing is dependent on having an infrastructure for electric vehicles that works much better than the current infrastructure. And that's something that is also going on at the same time. But it's really tough to get to that critical mass necessary to have it be a major shift in the next three to five years. I think over the next 10 years, you will see a very large shift. And the automakers are making a commitment there, both domestically and abroad. I think what's important for the auto workers is they're looking at what is their role going to be 
in terms of those plants. Yeah, this is, you know, thank God for Tesla, because otherwise I'm not sure what would offset uh, the potential impact of this major inflection point we're at. And at some point, maybe the big three uh, will catch up. Okay, Diane, let me pivot and ask you about some of the other economic data this morning. Consumer confidence uh, sentiment was a little bit weaker. We've had higher inflation reports throughout the week. The Fed's going to meet next week. You think they're still on hold? What's the shakeout of all this? Absolutely. The Fed, you know, this is one of the reasons why September was always such a tricky month anyways for the Fed. One, they're trying to calibrate, are we at our peak? I think they are at their peak in rates, and I think another rate hike is not likely. That said, they want to keep the option out there because they knew this could be potentially a lot of noise. And in fact, you can't ask for much more dissonance in the overall economy as they go into this meeting. And at the same time, amongst themselves, they're debating how do they calibrate getting to the exact right rate on rates. And that is a a heated debate, um, even as the economy overall inflation numbers are cooling, but energy prices are picking up. The Fed's also looking at the fact that we've had blistering heat waves and droughts, which have meant are going to mean higher uh, agricultural prices and higher food prices. Although we don't, you know, they like to strip those out and look at core. And when it all happens all at the same time with oil prices going up as well, we tend to see with those kind of simultaneous shocks more spillover effects towards inflation. So the Fed will sort of try to stay on the sidelines in September, but leave options out there to continue raising rates if necessary. But certainly the mantra of higher for longer is not going to go away, even though we have seen a significant cooling in inflation since last year. Wow. Diane, for now, thank you. We really appreciate it. A lot of balls in the air. Throw the strikes uh, into that, of course. Diane Swank joining us from KPMG. We'll hear directly from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen as well when she weighs in on the economy and the latest round of labor strikes. That'll be Squawk on the Street Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Meanwhile, stocks are lower and the Dow, in fact, is right near session lows at the moment ahead of that Fed decision on interest rates next week. And my next guest says the stock gains will continue but be a little harder to come by from here. Joining me now is Steve Auth, the Chief Investment Officer of Equities at Federated Hermes. Welcome to you, first of all. Thank you, Kelly. Exciting times. I get, can I ask you, I'm just going to throw this out. Why would you think that GM and Ford and, and why are all the company shares trading higher today as they head into what looks like a, an existential crisis for them? I, I, it may just, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news kind of thing. I, the opposite of that. Right. Yeah, a little bit of bounce here. Um, thinking people are realizing, well, the strike's not affecting all of their plants, mm-hmm. which is kind of what everyone was thinking until they saw this morning that we're only talking about three factories. So maybe that's that's it. I, I don't know. These have hardly been high flyers. Longer term, this is a tough, the, the tough business. They're trying to make the transition to EV. Uh, they got labor price yeah. you know, problems. Um, tough way to make, make a buck. I remember sitting here with Bill Miller, or I think we were in New York, but maybe five or seven years ago, and around the time that Tesla was on one of its, you know, spurts, stock spurts, and I said to him, well, what about Ford and GM? Wouldn't that be, and he's like, you know, you could take a look at it. I mean, I think the stock prices today might be where they were back then. Yeah, the I mean, they're, they're trying to work on two platforms simultaneously. Tesla's only working on one, electric. But True. all the big major And that's hard enough, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and these are, you know, very capital-intensive businesses. And so 
It's just until they make the full transition, which could be another five, seven years from now, I think they're just tough businesses. Well, Tesla, NVIDIA, these kind of $900 billion stocks have been to some people where the easy money of the last a little while has been. Where do you think the harder you know, money or the harder gains or the harder investment decisions are now in the market? Where do you, where do you think people should be looking? We really think the market's going to broaden out here, Kelly, uh, and it's been grinding out with earnings. The, the broader market's trading about 15 times, 15 and a half times earnings. Is it that? Low? Yeah, the average equal weighted S and P. Equal weighted, okay. Yeah. So, and, and there's lots of stocks uh, in the financial sector trading at single digits, industrials, uh, you know, trading at mid, double digits, maybe at best. Um, you know, so I think those are going to be the areas here as the concerns about this recession kind of blow away, and you have all these companies where the management teams were preparing for the recession, so their cost structures are in pretty good shape. Your inventory levels are pretty tight. Uh, and then the stocks are kind of reflecting a, a recession that doesn't come. So you get a kind of double goose there. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's kind of a stock picking game from here. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, you're not buying financials broadly. You're buying kind of best in class or, you know, a little bit safer site. Goldman, PNC are some of the names there. You do have some tech. I mean, ASML is maybe the quietest, most important company in the world right now. You've also got Alphabet. You've got Amazon. You've got IBM. Yeah, well, IBM is is a kind of value play in tech. It's a misunderstood story. People, you know, fell asleep. They think it's still an old industrial tech company, and it's mostly software and services now. It's got open uh, cloud computing is a big piece. It's going to be an AI beneficiary. Stock is starting to move, but it's trading way below uh, the levels of other big tech stocks. So the value names like that we think are interesting. Here. Would would you say that you still have major concerns about kind of the setup in markets? You know, some people worried about bond levels. They're worried about, you know, the debt or deficit situation, how that could play into that next year. Um, I'm just curious kind of what you see as the biggest potential pain points. Well, it's been a slow moving adjustment. And that's what we, you know, I always say that time is on the side of the ball. You take the regional banks as an example. Every month that goes by, they, you know, put away another, yeah. <laughs> another couple of percent in reserves against the commercial real estate crisis that everybody knows is coming. So these kind of slow moving things give uh, managers and investors time to adjust. So I think that's been sort of the theme here this year that, you know, the more this thing gets put off, uh, the more everyone else gets to adjust and then it doesn't happen at all. And that's kind of where we are right now. If the freight train moves slow enough, even you and me can avoid it. Exactly. <laughs> I guess is the message. <laughs> Steve, thank you as always. It's a pleasure. Really thank appreciate you, Kelly. your time. Steve Auth with Federated Hermes. Still to come, airlines, especially Delta, was on such a hot streak a few months ago. Remember that 16-day win streak? But its shares are down 20% from their highs as jet fuel prices have soared, prompting Delta, American, United, and others to cut guidance for the current quarter. Top airline analyst Jamie Baker joins us on that next. Plus, a special three buys into bail IPO edition on deck is our trader buying into ARM's public debut. As we go to break, let's get a look at markets. Dow continues to move lower today, down 285 points. It's actually the outperformer, though. S&P's down about 1.1%, 44.53. NASDAQ down 1.5%. Even the Russell's in the red as the 10-year yield pops back above 4.3, 431, in fact. We're back after this on The Exchange. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. 
Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Some of the country's biggest airlines are warning on profits. Delta, the latest major carrier to cut its guidance yesterday, following similar moves by American, United, Southwest, and Alaska. A surge in fuel and labor costs cutting into profits. And it comes at a time when travel demand has been slowing down. And you know oil prices could keep climbing. So should you stay away from this trade right now, or could it be a good entry point? Let's ask our next guest, Jamie Baker. He is Senior Airlines Analyst at J.P. Morgan. Last year, he was the first ever analyst inducted into the Institutional Investor Hall of Fame for coverage of airline stocks. Jamie, welcome back. Good to see you, Kelly. Thanks. You know, because even though Buffett was in them for a while, then he got out, right? So people still aren't sure if they ever want to get involved here. And maybe the last couple months are a case in point. All the excitement and then now down 20% from the highs. Is this an entry point? Well, look, we think that it is. Fuel prices have been steadily ascending since July. So I don't think that came as much of a surprise to the market this week. But, you know, if anything, the guides that, you know, we received across the industry this week, you know, it really affirms something that we believed from, you know, from spring, springtime this year. If you don't cater to the premium passenger, if you don't fly internationally, if you don't have a robust loyalty program, then at the moment you don't really have a seat at the grown-ups table. I've been telling people, you know, I don't, not that, but, you know, why fly other airlines and put yourself at the risk of major delays, cancellations, and all the rest? As I understand, part of the issue with that has been that the airlines are literally, they have fewer flights scheduled than they used to, so it's, it's harder to rebook you. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair point. Uh, load factors have, you know, reclaimed their all-time highs, so in the, in the event of a disruption, uh, it tends to be, you know, difficult to be reaccommodated. I mean, that's, that's an unfortunate reality at the moment. Uh, but operationally, I mean, if, if airlines start setting aside, you know, material number of spare aircraft uh, just in hopes of, you know, you know, dealing with weather delays, that's only going to have an upward impact, a material upward impact uh, on ticket pricing. So, it, it, you know, it kind of cuts both ways. Yeah, you're underweight on JetBlue. You're overweight on a lot of the names we talk about, Delta, yeah. uh, United American, with some significant upside. So is this jet fuel issue just for the third quarter? How much of this is jet fuel? How much is labor? Um, you know, the labor costs, you know, by and large, are already incorporated in the guides that uh, right. that we've gotten across the industry. So the, the move in the last week, the formal revisions to guidance, were largely 
related to fuel prices. Uh, I do think there's some demand weakness uh, at the more elastic end of the demand curve. The consumer that is, you know, feeling some pressure from rising unleaded prices, feeling pressure from student loan repayments. Uh, you know, that, that end of the demand curve is showing some weakness right now. But again, those are the types of passengers uh, that tend to skew more towards the spirits and the frontiers of the world than the Americans, Deltas, and Uniteds of the world. Yeah, so jet fuel being one of these things that takes them down for this quarter, how significant a setback is that for what their profit hopes might have been for this year? And do you expect the prices to stay as high and, and stay as much of a headwind as they are? Well, look, if, if, if I, you know, was a good oil analyst, I'd, I'd be doing something, <laughs> you know, different for a living. Uh, what I could tell you is that the industry, by and large, generally takes four to six months to sort of recalibrate to sustained higher input costs. And they'll do that through capacity cuts. They'll do that through fare increases. So at this point, we're not seeing anything in the oil market that calls into question what we think the industry can earn in 2024. Clearly, it's a disappointment for the third quarter. For the fourth quarter, we've already been modeling pretty close to where spot fuel prices are right now. So at this point, no major revisions uh, are, are required. Uh, but again, it really comes down to, to the rate of fuel price change and the persistence of that change and whether these elevated prices, you know, uh, prove to be sustained. Yeah, still some significant upsides in a lot of your target prices here. Is Tom Brady worth the money for Delta, do you think? <laughs> uh, look, I've been doing this a long time. I did not see that one coming. <laughs> um, you know, airlines, different airlines have different cultures. And in the case of Delta, I think, uh, you know, the idea of bringing in some proven outside leadership uh, is an interesting idea. You know, we'll see if he can rally the troops there. You know, as motivational speakers go, it's not like Tom Brady has been living in a van down by the river. Uh, I assume he knows what he's talking about, but it's not the sort of thing where, you know, I opened a spreadsheet and, you know, twisted you know, the, the knobs there to make any any changes. I, I do give Delta credit here for thinking outside the box. No, and you're right. As a marketing move, it is very much plays to their audience. So probably, probably see themselves as, as Tom Brady acolytes. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kelly. Take Jamie care. Jamie Baker with JP Morgan. Coming up, Instacart raising its IPO range after ARM's impressive debut. We'll talk about whether this reset will ultimately provide better results for investors or if it risks getting heady again. And as we go to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map, which is down more than 300 points now, by the way. Home Depot and Intel are for, uh, among the worst performers today. While there's only four stocks in the green, Disney is one of them. It's actually having its best week since March, reportedly in talks to sell a number of its TV properties, including ABC. We'll get you details on a potential deal next. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one 844 Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Disney is on track for its best week since March. Remember, just last Thursday, it had closed at its lowest level in nearly a decade and breaking below 80 bucks a share. Uh, now a little bit different story, but there is a reason. Julia Borson brings us the details. Julia? Well, Kelly, it's the beginning of the end of an era for Disney, as sources tell me that the media giant is talking to a wide variety of potential buyers for its linear TV assets. Now, a source close to the situation tells me that Nexstar Media Group, that's the nation's largest TV station owner, approached Disney expressing interest in buying the ABC network and stations. And Allen Media Company CEO Byron Allen says that he offered $10 billion for those assets, plus FX and National Geographic, based on the assumption of $1.25 billion in EBITDA for the past 12 months. Though it's unclear exactly how he's going to be raising the funds, but to perhaps debt for that offer. Now, Disney says, quote, while we are open to considering a variety of strategic options for our linear businesses, at this time, the Walt Disney Company has made no decision with respect to the divestiture of ABC or any other property. Now, analysts are split on these talks and this potential move. Key Bank writing, Disney's view on pay TV is that it will soon implode, which to us means applying meaningful discount rates to all linear cash flow. Rosenblatt writes, quote, Disney could extract meaningful asset value by breaking up and exiting broadcast could provide that. So this all comes amid reports that Disney is cutting its targets for Disney Plus subscribers by tens of millions. It also comes after its charter deal excluded some of the smaller networks as the company focuses on the higher margins and growth potential of the direct-to-consumer business. Kelly? It feels like they're all right to a degree that, you know, maybe the best financial move for Disney is this, but it clearly doesn't signal a lot of optimism and in their status quo, which had been such a cash cow. What do you think the rest of the media industry is doing as it watches this play out? Well, I think it'll be really interesting to say who to see who else comes into play for these assets, whether there are some potential private equity buyers um, or whether there's really a consolidation among the local networks. I mean, I think um, if Nexstar were to acquire these assets, you'd really see meaningful strength in the local networks for Nexstar. But in terms of what it means for Disney, I think we're going to see a dramatically slimmed down company if Iger moves forward with a lot of the things he's talked about, really trying to streamline the business here. And I think it's interesting reflecting on how this interacts with what we saw with the charter deal and the fact that Disney was willing to give up um, distribution of some of its much, much smaller networks, such as Freeform, in order to gain the distribution of broader expo exposure for Disney Plus with ads. The whole company has shifted towards the opportunity in that direct-to-consumer relationship. And ABC and, and these local networks just don't fit into to the majority of what Disney is focused on, which is this powerful IP and these brands. It's true. And yet I wonder, Julia, if you kind of fast forward to a world in which maybe YouTube um, and Hulu and some of the rest of these are, are the, the point of contact for the consumer. Could we ever see a rebundling of these existing bundles, you know, where they say, to a YouTube, okay, well, if you want our carriage, you have to take all of our channels, including these lower tier ones. I mean, could we ever put put the genie back in the bottle like that with different ownership? 
I think you're right that bundling is going to always be sort of the name of the game. I think a la carte um, has, it will end up being a short-lived moment in, in, the, in the legacy of the media industry. I think we're going to see a rebundling, though, of skinnier bundles. And right now, if you pay for Hulu with live TV or YouTube with live TV, it is a smaller bundle than the mega bundle of hundreds of channels that we all used to subscribe to um, as a sort of standard for the pay TV ecosystem. We've even heard David Zaslav talk about sort of his interest in bundling their media assets together. And I think we could even hear a a lot more speculation, as what I'm hearing from sources, that we'll see different ones of these media companies bundle their products together. In this regulatory landscape, it's going to be hard to get a mega media deal approved by regulators. But what if you could bundle together some of these apps? How valuable would it be to have an HBO, or sorry, a Max, I shouldn't say HBO Max, but a Max bundled with a Netflix, bundled with a Disney Plus? That would be a super bundle. Hmm. Um, But I think that a lot of people are saying that that could be one way to lock in subscribers and reduce churn. Really interesting. Back to the future. Julia, thank you. For now, we appreciate it. Julia Borston. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for the CNBC News update. Tyler. All right, Kelly, thank you very much. A jury cleared three defendants in the final trial over the plot to kidnap Michigan Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The three men were found not guilty on charges of providing support for a terrorist act and a weapons charge. Fourteen men stood trial for the kidnapping conspiracy. Nine were convicted and five have been acquitted. European regulators handed down a $368 million fine to TikTok for failing to protect children's privacy. This is the first time the app has been punished for breaking Europe's privacy rules. Investigators found that when teens signed up for the app, their accounts were automatically made public. The features and settings listed in the report stem from violations back in 2020. And inflation is hitting Oktoberfest. Analyst firm Berenberg estimates that reveners in Germany will now pay more than $14 to lift their steins. The annual festival in Munich begins this weekend. Berenberg says the price of Oktoberfest beer has soared at an average annual rate of 3.9%. That's well above the annual rise of 2% in inflation and the 1.8% rise paid for beer at retailers in Germany. More expensive to have a raise a glass. Plus the plane ticket uh, if you're going. Tyler, thanks very much. Coming up, a special IPO edition of three buys into bail, including this name our trader says is still a buy despite being down 20% since its IPO in May. Our mystery chart, tweet me if you know it. Gina Sanchez joins me next to make her case for this healthcare play. There's your clue. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Of the 73 IPOs we've had in the past two years, 70% of them are trading below their IPO price. Yesterday, Arm became the biggest public offering in that group and closed up nicely. So can it buck the trend? We're looking at Arm and some other recent listings in this IPO edition of Three Buys into Bail. Joining us now is Gina Sanchez, Chantico Global CEO. Gina, welcome uh, for our trades today. All right, so let's begin with the stock of the week. Uh, Arm trading above its $51 IPO price still today quite nicely higher, almost 64 a share. You're a buyer, is that right? Uh, but maybe maybe a cautious one. I'm a cautious buyer, only cautious because it is a tremendous valuation. But the story is very clearly there. And this is a company that is IPOing profitably with massive sales and revenue. And that's huge. Right now, the markets are rethinking 
um, what is going to survive over uh, in a world where interest rates are higher for longer. And that means that you need more value for what you're buying. And a lot of the IPOs that came out, Kelly, in 2021, 22 came out with a lot of expectations. They came out unprofitably. Arm is not that. Arm is is shipping billions of investments in, and, and making revenue you know, well above the, the two billion mark. And so this is what you need right now in order to survive. I think ARM can bug that trend. All right, you're sticking with it. So let's move on then to a lesser known one, but with uh, how few IPOs we've had, it's gotten some attention. Savers Value Village, this was the end of June. It's down about 11% from its opening trade, but still above that $18 IPO price. Guggenheim saying the thrifting trend will continue to drive sales. You agree? I totally agree with that. And we're seeing it all over the U.S. We're seeing it globally. So this circular economy concept is really caught fire with millennials. And millennials are a very large cohort um, of buyers and of consumers. And so the idea that you can take something and wear it all the way to its life, uh, to the end of its life, right down to when it has holes and still make it trendy and fashionable. In fact, there are items that are being sold in thrift stores that are actually more expensive than the original items were um, to begin with out of creativity. So we're seeing a lot of value being created in this. And, you know, Savers Value Village leans right into that. All right. Uh, that brings us to our final buy of the IPO crop and the mystery chart that we showed before the break. It is Kenview, uh, the spinoff from J&J. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of headline troubles for them lately. They dipped below their IPO price even before that, off almost 20 percent from the opening price. Canaccord, though, among the analysts saying they could benefit from the FDA's findings on ineffective decongestants in the long run. Um, why are you buying Gina here? So, look, I think, yes, that the, the, the headline uh, was terrible. I agree. However, if you look at the broad swath of brands that was included in this spinoff, I mean, these are names like Tylenol, like Band-Aid, Johnson & Johnson Shampoo. These are names that have been on the shelves for a long time. They have a tremendous amount of brand value and consumer recognition. The spinoff spun off profitably, and I think that they'll continue um, to weather that storm. So the fact is, is that they, they can weather a storm like this. And this is the kind of, these are the kinds of products that people buy when the economy slows. And we're expecting a slowdown. We're not calling for a recession, but we're certainly expecting a slowdown. And in a slowdown, people buy stuff they know. Yeah. Uh, we should mention all of your buys are from the 2023 vintage and your bail is a little bit of an earlier one. And I think that you know, the, the vintage year has a lot to do with the performance here. Beyond Meat, back in 2019, went public at 25, opened at 46, broke above 200, let us not forget, uh, and is down sharply since. T.D. Cowan just initiated it at Underperform this week, saying they're facing an existential threat, losing market share and are trying to preserve cash. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough haul. And you have a lot of names like Beyond Meat. These specialty uh, food and specialty beverage segment, <clears throat> when people get really concerned about their cash flow, they kind of go to stuff they know. Like I said, that's my thesis for J&J, &J, uh, for, rather for Kenview. Um, and the opposite is true for Beyond Meat and anything like Beyond Meat. Um, you know, these, these are, these are things that people like when they're feeling flush with cash, and that's not going to be the case next year. Incredible. $10 stock now. I, you also mentioned Oatly. I think it's become literally too small for us to mention and is at risk of being delisted. So let us not forget. I mean, do you think it was just yeah. this was just unique to the last couple of years, or is this still a risk for any IPOs that are coming to market? 
Look, I think the idea of these, these food products are interesting, but the question is, are they interesting enough in order to command wallet share? This is the real push, right? So can you make a, a, an argument that people are willing to spend because they think their health is going to be better as a result of this? I don't think that people are seeing that trade-off quite yet, or they're not seeing it fast enough to be willing to lean into it in a slowdown. And right now we're focused on defensive names then and meat and potatoes, and I mean real meat and potatoes. <laughs> All right, Gina, thank you very much. We appreciate it today. <laughs> Gina Sanchez with three buys into bail. Let's get a quick check on the NASDAQ, somewhat of a barometer for uh, you know whether the markets are open to IPOs. Having a tough session as we close out the week, uh, the worst of the major average is down about one and a half percent today. Instacart, meanwhile, there's Adobe, I should mention as well. Uh, if you want to talk about barometers, they had earnings last night. That was supposed to be a nice AI beneficiary. Stock's done well lately, but uh, couldn't do enough to stem that 4.5% decline. Meanwhile, Instacart has been raising its IPO price range and is now targeting nearly a $10 billion valuation after Arms debut yesterday. Deirdre Bosa joins us now for Tech Check. I don't know if I'm, uh, you know, Instacart might feel happy about this, Deirdre, but I don't know. We better not go back to the bad old days. <laughs> well, I mean, $10 billion, even if you do get close to it, still a far cry from that $39 billion where it raised at just a few years ago. So given that it has come down so much, there are going to be a number of investors underwater in this IPO. If it goes public anywhere, even near $10 billion, even at $20 billion, there's going to be losers here. So take a look. We made up this graphic. You can see the late stage investors. These are the ones that got in later when the valuation had already been bid up well above $10 billion. It's Tiger Global. It's institutional investors like Fidelity and T. Rowe Price, which means that you know, some of those holding them in mutual funds are going to be underwater. And here's also, though, VC firms like Andreessen Horowitz that got in later. On the other side of this image, though, you see the early stage investors. They're going to make money on this no matter what. Take a Sequoia, a Coastal Ventures, an SV Angel. They were all in in the Series A round. So that happened in 2013 when Instacart was valued at just $25 million. So they stand to benefit from this. Sequoia could be up as much as 400%. There's also some individuals. The founder, Arpurva Mehta, of course, um, his stake will be worth nearly a billion dollars when they go public at this valuation. But there's also some other names that may be familiar to our audience, uh, certainly in tech. Gary Tan, Sam Altman, Aaron Levy, they all got in as kind of angel investors in the early stages. And Kelly, this is very different than SoftBank and ARM. In ARM, there was only one potential winner or loser, and that was SoftBank and Masasan. This Instacart is a traditional venture-backed IPO, 10 rounds of equity financing um, with more, almost 100 different investors on the cap table. So there's going to be people who make money and lose money on this. Yeah, 4% growth in the first half of the year, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And that's part of the reason why it's going at such a lower valuation. You've seen sort of we talked about valuation disparity, and that is the idea that private markets like public markets. So we've seen this correction um, for tech companies, certainly in the public markets, some of the IPO class of 2021, the hot enterprise names, even the consumer names. Instacart waited to go public. So it's sort of taking the hit as mm -hmm. it goes public. And in, in you know private markets, we call this a down round. And that's essentially what this is. So we've talked about this before, Kelly. Maybe there's more upside for the retail investors that finally are not getting in at the peak. Exactly. Exactly. Deirdre, thank you very much. We'll see what next week brings. Deirdre Bosa reporting. Meanwhile, the tax man cometh for all of this year's big T-bill capital gains. Up next, find out whether now is the time for investors to diversify into tax-exempt munis. 
And check out shares of Planet Fitness, which are hitting a 52-week low after the surprise ouster of its longtime CEO. No reason given for his departure. The company says he will remain on the board. Great write-up at CNBC.com. Planet shares down almost 15%. We're back after this. T-bill and chill might have been all the rage this year, but now the taxes are coming due. And for investors staring at some big capital gains bills, munis offer a welcome tax-exempt alternative, particularly for those in the top brackets. Take this example. New York issued a billion dollars in AA-rated 30-year debt last month, priced to yield at about 4.35%. But with tax adjustments, the wealthiest residents earn yields equivalent to 10% taxable debt, according to reports. So should you forget T-bills and move over to munis? Jennifer Johnston is director of research for Franklin Templeton Fixed Income Muni Bond Group. So I'm guessing you're going to say yes, Jennifer. Yes, I am going to say yes to that for sure. And there's actually a variety of reasons, some which we would always talk about, which is exactly what you're addressing, which is the tax advantage nature of the asset class in general and the fact that you can get tax-free income, which, depending on your tax bracket, um, can result in um, you know absolute yields that really outperform other segments of the asset of the, of the other asset classes. And second, you know, we feel pretty comfortable about the muni market from a credit fundamental standpoint. Uh, you know, we, we think that they're good from a comparative basis to, you know, corporate bonds, as an example. Uh, we tend to have lower default rates. So even in times of economic weakness, um, you can feel still feel pretty good about the credit quality of your investments as well. And so, you know, for some investors who are maybe not in the highest brackets, they might say, well, it's not as big a deal. I mean, is this really a strategy just for those who are wealthier? So we think that anybody in any tax bracket can benefit from this. And then what we would look to in that situation is perhaps the tax advantage aspect isn't as powerful. But again, going back to the credit quality, to the fact that default rates are lower and overall credit quality um, is actually higher than similar indexes, say, on the corporate side. Right. So we think it's a good diversification from a credit standpoint as well. Yeah, I don't know if you saw it today, but Ray Dalio made some comments along the lines of cash is great, uh, but he wouldn't own bonds. And what would your response be to that to those investors who, like him, are a little bit on the, the hawkish side of things still? Sure. Well, we get a sense that there are quite a few people with money still on the sidelines, and we can't wait for them to jump into the muni market. But we think this is a great time to be in the fixed income asset class in general, even because rates are higher than they were two years ago. You're getting, you know, perhaps up to 200 basis points more than you did two years ago. So to be able to capitalize on those higher rates, this is the time to do that. And to the extent that, you know, the Fed is actively involved with um, trying to control inflation, uh, we don't know how long this rate environment could last. So it might be time to jump in uh, <laughs> so that, you know, you want to be at the head of that process. Uh, you don't want to be the last guy back into the asset class. Do I have to worry New York is going to default? No, you do not have to worry of all credits that New York is going to fall. We feel pretty confident in general about credit quality. Coming out of the pandemic, that economic recovery, we have strong reserves and very strong management going into any kind of softness. Um, you know, we are seeing revenues to cities and states uh, slow down a little bit. Again, those are driven by inflation. So as inflation is controlled, we're seeing revenues come down. But there, it's not to a level where we're concerned about 
um, municipalities, New York included, you know, being able to find reserves or cut spending in order to manage a balanced budget. All right. All right, Jennifer, thank you. As always, we appreciate it. A lot of people learning a lot of lessons about taxes, uh, cash, and bonds this year, that's for sure. Jennifer Johnson from Franklin Templeton. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.